Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Marvin Singh is an integrative gastroenterologist in San Diego and a member of the board and diplomat of the American Board of Integrative Medicine. He's also trained and board certified in internal medicine and gastroenterology. A graduate of Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine, Singh completed his residency training in internal medicine at the University of Michigan Health System, followed by a fellowship training in gastroenterology at the Scripps Clinic. He was trained by Dr. Andrew Weil, a pioneer in the field of integrative medicine at the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. He's currently a volunteer assistant clinical professor at UCSD in the Department of Family Medicine and Public Health. Prior to this, he's been a clinical assistant professor at UCLA and an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins. He's a member of the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and many other societies. He's one of the editors of the textbook Integrative Gastroenterology in the second edition and one of our frequent favorite contributors here at MindBuddyGreen. When it comes to gut health, he's one of the best in the biz, and if you're local in San Diego, you can check him out at the Precision Clinic, where he brings the best in preventative medicine to his clients. It's an honor to have him here today. Marvin, welcome. Thank you. It's so great to have you here. Big fan of your work on Mind Body Green, and I would love to start with your personal health journey. You have a pretty powerful personal health story, so let's start there. Yeah, um, thank you for having me. Um, my health journey started, uh, I don't know, about four years ago or so, maybe four or five years ago. And I was over 200 pounds and uh, had fatty liver, and my liver enzymes were elevated in the several hundred range. And um, I wasn't really sure what to do. Um, because I thought I was eating healthy, you know. Everybody says, oh, you shouldn't have Coke, you should drink Coke Zero, you know, (laughs) you should uh, eat a sandwich for lunch instead of pizza or burger. So, you know, he did all these kind of things, just really wasn't sure, you know, what else to do besides exercise, you know. And as a a busy trainee doctor, you know, it's hard to find the time to exercise as much, but I said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll try to exercise more. Around the same time, you know, I started to feel, you know, that um, there was something missing from how we practice medicine. And I wasn't sure exactly what the missing piece was. You know, I was very well trained from very respectable uh, institutions. And as I started working in the following, you know, year or two after training, um, uh, I continued with the same health problems and continued with the same concerns as far as how we actually practice medicine. And almost to the point where I was questioning whether I should even be a doctor. Like, am I, am I doing something wrong? You know, if somebody, they call me, somebody's dying in the hospital, yeah, I can go save their life. But what about the majority of people that keep coming to the office kind of with the same kind of things that I'm experiencing with my own health? And then I found uh, Andrew Weil's work in integrative medicine. And um, uh, the, I read the textbook of integrative gastroenterology, um, and I realized that the, the guy who wrote the book, the editor, uh, was one of my colleagues from Johns Hopkins, where I had my first job, and I reached out to him, and he encouraged me to do the fellowship. And when I started the fellowship, is a two-year program, so while I'm actively working full-time, I'm basically like putting myself through school, like night school kind of. 
And um, I learned about a lot of different things that I never really appreciated that much uh, in training and in practice. And uh, when I went for my first residential week um, at the University of Arizona in Tucson and got to interact with Andy Weil and some of the other faculty, I really, we really deeply immersed ourselves in, you know, what integrative medicine is and was doing like Tai Chi and yoga at sunrise, uh, you know, in the, in the Arizona desert and learning about different kinds of foods and, and how to eat mindfully and all these different techniques and practices that I didn't really appreciate. Maybe I knew, but didn't really appreciate the value. And I came home and I was just totally rejuvenated. I felt like a breath of fresh air was blown into my body and I was like, this is probably exactly what I was looking for. And um, I started implementing these practices in my own health. And very quickly, I'd say maybe within the first two to four weeks, I lost the first 10 pounds. And uh, that was just easily by taking away the sugar-sweetened beverages and reducing the carbs and the breads and all that kind of stuff. That, that was the easy part. And then starting to optimize the diet and eating a lot more vegetables and salads and, and things like that um, and increasing fiber intake, I started to more rapidly lose weight. And then after that, I started adding the layers of exercising and meditation and um, sleeping better and making sure you're hydrated. And uh, then the rest, you know, almost the, the same amount came off again. And so uh, my health totally changed, my mindset changed, and that's where I became a uh, passionate advocate for integrative medicine because I could see in real life that, you know, I had the problems myself and I was able to kind of reverse them. And I started applying that to patients that I was seeing and saw that the same thing was happening with them as well. So it sounds like nutrition and mindfulness were not cornerstones of the curriculum at med school. No, no. I mean, uh, we probably have uh, some biochemistry of nutrition they teach you about, but really nothing practical. So if you went from uh, a sandwich and Diet Coke guy (laughs) back then, how would you describe your philosophy on nutrition today? Today, my philosophy on nutrition is you have to eat whole, real foods, try to vary it, and eat a lot of vegetables. Um, I really I really feel, I mean, I'm not a vegan. I'm not like a hardcore, like only vegetables, only vegetables, um, you know. But you got, no matter what style of diet you're eating, um, there should be a fair amount of plants in there. 75%, 80 yeah, you got to have yeah, a lot of plants. you got to have the plants. <laughs> so what I'm always, I'm always curious as, as a lover of, of vegetables, what are your, what are some of your favorite vegetables? <laughs> My favorite, I love asparagus. Really? Yeah. And you know, growing up, I never ate asparagus. I don't think, I don't think I ever had asparagus. Now, now as, is that for taste or is that for nutrition? Both. Okay. Yeah. Asparagus. Uh, yeah, that's a good asparagus. one. Asparagus. Brussels sprouts I love. Okay. Um, and uh, broccoli is always, you know, a standard favorite. Gotta um, love the dark leafy yeah. greens. Yeah. And the, the kale and spinach. Um, Swiss chard is probably one of my uh, favorite uh, leafy greens. Um, that I love them all. So <laughs> what do most people see you for and what trends are you seeing with patients? I'm kind of a, a man of all trades, I guess. I, I have a couple of different practices, so I see different kinds of people. I have a standard uh, GI practice where, you know, if you have any standard problems, you need a colonoscopy or an endoscopy, I see you there. 
Um, but I uh, started a new clinic called Precision Clinic, where I'm really focusing on the deeper integrative and functional medicine evaluations and helping people understand how their body works uh, more for the prevention and reversal of chronic disease. And that's what I love doing. Um, uh, and it's my passion to help people figure their health out. So I see a wide variety of people from, you know, all kinds of ages, from, you know, 18 all the way to, you know, 70s, 80s plus. So maybe let's separate that. So if we take the, the GI practice, what trends are you seeing with patients there? So Frank Lepman, who I've had on the podcast before, will say, you know, when he first started practicing, people tended to be old, older. Now patients are getting younger and younger. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious on the GI side, are there specific things you're seeing more of, whether it's SIBO or I, I don't know what. SIBO is huge in my practice. Really? Um, uh, I was just a guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, as an integrative gastroenterologist, um, I would <laughs> say, um, I don't know why or how, but uh, it seems to be that uh, majority of my practice ended up being SIBO patients. 80% maybe. Wow. Yeah, 80%. <laughs> so what do you, any idea, inclination of what's going on there? I think, uh, I think SIBO is a subset of people that uh, you know, have chronic bloating and um, digestive issues and bowel habits aren't as they would like. And uh, these, these people uh, that have these kinds of symptoms um, gravitate towards an integrative or a functional medicine provider because they're the ones that are the most easily dismissed by the conventional doctors. That's mm -hmm. what I think. And the reason being, which I, this is just my, my, my theory on it, as uh, there's no way to prove it, but um, my theory on why that is the case is because these are the people that need the most counseling on nutrition and mindfulness and some of the other lifestyle measures and things like that. And it's very difficult to do that. It's not really our fault as physicians. We all want to take care of patients. We all love patients. We went into healthcare for a reason. But um, the way that the system is designed in this country, at least, it's, it's almost impossible when you have a 15-minute slot Five minutes of that is taken up by the MA, you know, taking the vital signs. Yeah, you blood know. pressure. And then, you know, you, you walk in the door assuming that everything is on time and the prior patient didn't take double the amount of time, um, you know. Uh, and you have maybe seven minutes to talk to somebody about stresses in their life. Like what if somebody died or what if they were in a bad car accident and they're traumatized from that? You know, you don't really have that much time to do that. So you just kind of focus on this is your symptom, this is the medication, this is your symptom, this is the medication. And that's actually what began frustrating me earlier on in my career. And I, I just like, this is ridiculous. This is not how you take care of people. Um, and that's, uh, that's kind of how uh, I came to change the way that I practice. Well, so with regards to SIBO, uh, understood that everyone's an individual and everyone needs unique solutions and they have unique problems and so forth. Are there general best practices that you find yourself prescribing in terms of nutrition for people suffering from SIBO? A lot of people uh, benefit from avoiding these FODMAP foods. Um, these foods are, you know, certain kinds of foods that are highly fermentable by the bacteria. I guess we should say. You know, C can you walk through SIBO. FODMAP for everyone? Let's do a FODMAP yeah. primer. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, I guess we should tell everybody what SIBO is, if some people yes. don't know what SIBO is. So SIBO <clears throat> stands for Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth, S-I-B-O. 
So we have trillions of bacteria in our entire GI tract. Majority of them are in the colon, but um, sometimes we can have an overgrowth of these bacteria in the small intestine due to a wide variety of things. Oftentimes, some of the underlying root causes are, you know, stress and uh, dysmotility, meaning the GI tract isn't squeezing and moving things along as well, and dietary choices and, you know, environmental exposures, toxins, things like that all play a role in all that. Um, so the FODMAPs uh, are kinds of foods, and these can be very healthy foods. Some of the things that we just talked about, like, you know, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, cabbage, these are all have, you know, as an example of uh, FODMAP foods, um, are all very healthy for you because they have good nutrition. But in certain people, they're, um, they don't settle well because when you eat them and the food gets broken down, the bacteria start fermenting these and it makes gas. And sometimes people get a lot of bloating and diarrhea, um, sometimes belching, um, and they just feel really, you know, uncomfortable. And so part of the process is to eliminate these foods from the diet and not forever though. Um, my goal is to eliminate the, you know, these foods that can be driving the, the symptoms um, for a period of time while we address, you know, the bacterial imbalance and some of the underlying root causes and then slowly start reintroducing certain foods and per, perhaps category by category because um, there are like five different categories. There's fructans, there's polyols. There are different kinds of categories of uh, these FODMAPs. Can you walk through them? That would be great. Um, yeah. So, you know, um, uh, there are different categories. The polyols are one of the probably most, I say, combustible. <laughs> These are like your xylitol, your mannitol, sorbitol. These are like your sugar Sugars, alcohols. all the yeah. alls. Yeah. All the things that basically where they say sugar-free, good for you, sugar-free, you know, on the label, most of the times they're going to have these polyols in them. So yep. even chewing gum. I've caught some people, um, you know, saying, I eat, I don't eat any FODMAPs, and they're in there smacking their gum. I'm like, what kind of gum are you chewing? <laughs> and you find out that there may be like two or three of these FODMAPs in the gum. And uh, sometimes just stopping to chewing the gum is uh, actually uh, part of the help for them. And, you know, there are, you know, fructans and um, uh, several other different categories of these uh, FODMAP foods that... Um, uh, they may have some relation with each other in their, um, the degree of symptoms that they create. And um, some of them may not be as bad as others. So I have a nice table uh, uh, handout in my office that I give people. Um, and uh, all the categories are kind of lined up in column by column. And I tell them to kind of look at each column and See if you can identify which foods might cause you the most symptoms and um, focus on those, you know, primarily and uh, sequentially kind of back off. And then after time, then we can slowly start reintroducing. But the main thing is to look at the serving sizes of the foods that you're eating. So, you know... I think anybody, if you had too much of one thing, is going to have a problem. Like I said, I love Brussels sprouts. So um, if I had just a standard amount of Brussels sprouts, I, I might probably be okay. But if I went a little overboard and I filled my entire plate with Brussels sprouts, especially if it was on like a bed of cabbage, I mean, I'm going to have a problem. I think most people would have a problem. It's just it's too much load at, you know, at one time. 
So looking at the dose, like my favorite saying, uh, one of my colleagues said is, is that the dose makes the poison. So <laughs> that goes for anything. I mean, you drink too much coffee, you have too much water, you, you know, anything can actually become a problem in your body if you overdo it. So looking at those, uh, different, uh, elements can be helpful. Got it. So you, you mentioned sugar, which made me think of blood sugar, which is something that is very important. Why, in your opinion, is GI? Why, what's the connection with blood sugar? Why is it so critical? Blood sugar is really important because blood sugar triggers insulin response. And insulin is basically something that we have in our body to help reduce the blood sugar levels in our body and help get the sugar into the cells. But when there's too much insulin, it can create inflammation in the body. And so um, that's why, you know, and inflammation is a chronic, uh, you know, the root cause of most, most chronic diseases. And even Alzheimer's disease, they're calling type 3 diabetes because we always associate blood sugar and insulin with diabetes. And uh, we now know that uh, things such as Alzheimer's disease, which you wouldn't even think have anything to do with blood sugar, mm -hmm. have to do with blood sugar as one of, uh, you know, the contributing factors. So what are we doing wrong? You know, as we, as we both sip our black coffee, it's the morning though. So it's like you get that three o'clock afternoon slump and what can we do better in terms of optimizing for blood sugar and avoiding the pitfalls? I think um, listening to your body, first of all, you know, is one thing. Uh, if you're really not hungry, you don't have to eat. I mean, <laughs> there, there are a lot of cultural I guess, or societal, quote unquote, norms, we feel like, oh, you know, um, I'm going out to meet somebody at eight o'clock, we have to have breakfast. You don't have to have breakfast. I mean, I didn't eat anything this morning. The black coffee is good enough for me. Um, I practice. We have great black coffee. Yeah, here. it is. Good. It's, I actually, it's organic black coffee here at my buddy green headquarters. <laughs> yeah. She asked me, do I want it black or do I want to put almond milk? I said, well, it depends on how good the coffee is. <laughs> if Got I have to dilute it or not. Here. So I'm drinking it black cause it's good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I practice intermittent fasting, so that can kind of help with blood sugar regulation. And, um, uh, I don't really need to eat anymore. I mean, it takes a little bit of training uh, in the beginning, but I don't really need to eat in the morning anymore. Uh, if I, you know, I might start to get hungry around lunchtime, and that's where my window uh, of eating opens up, and you, you know, eat in the in an eight-hour window. Um, sometimes it's even tighter. Um, and sometimes I even, you know, uh, periodically, maybe once a month, I might do like a 24-hour fast where, you know, maybe I'll have dinner and then I won't eat again until dinner time. And um, that's no problem. I mean, you, you kind of get used to it. And it's a good way to kind of rejuvenate uh, your body and let, sure. you know, um, all the stem cells proliferate and your just body just kind of clean up the junk, basically. Autophagy. Yeah, exactly. So, so you're, you're a fan of IF. Can we talk about from a GI's perspective, yeah. this idea of like resting the gut a little bit? Rest and, and, and digest. <laughs> there you go. So, so what do you, in terms of IF, I'm curious, like what, what do you, it sounds like you're a fan of 16-8 and like uh -huh. what, what, do you, what have you seen with patients and, and how do you look at IF with regards to benefits for gut health? Yeah, actually, you know, with the patients, we were talking about SIBO earlier, 
a lot of the patients I also, we talked about FODMAP. That's just one thing. I also talked to them about intermittent fasting. A lot of them actually find uh, great benefit in the intermittent fasting um, uh, because uh, I think you're giving yourself an opportunity to kind of chill out, let your digestive system kind of find some balance. Because if you're already in a highly fermentable state and the bacteria are just fermenting, making gas, making gas, and then you continue to feed your gut is not going to calm it down. It's just going to perpetuate the problem. Mm. So fasting has kind of helped people a lot um, uh, with the bloating and the symptoms uh, management as well. And you also find people, you know, feeling more energetic, more clear-headed, um, losing weight, uh, improving their hemoglobin A1Cs, their blood sugar management. So it can offer a wide variety of um, uh, improvements. So what are we talked earlier about your your GI practice, then then you've got your personalized practice. So what are some of the things you do there that are outside of the the scope of what a regular GI would do in terms of testing? Like what are the things that are interesting and developing in terms of, you know, looking at bloods, labs, et cetera? Yeah. So uh, in my precision clinic, I do all kinds of cool stuff. We look at the microbiome. I even do whole genome sequencing. Um, we'll look at food sensitivities, chemical sensitivities, toxin levels, even you know mold exposure, um, nutritional genetics, inflammatory markers. Uh, I even do whole body brain imaging, cardiac imaging, all these kind of things and put them together really to kind of help understand what's going on in the body. And a lot of times we focus on one topic, maybe because it's simpler or it's easier to understand, oh, gut health means microbiome. Gut health, yes, means microbiome, but that's not the whole picture because if you're only focusing on one part, you're going to miss the rest. And um, there are external things that may impact the microbiome and gut health. And if you don't look at those, you're not going to be seeing the whole picture. So I try to look at all of that together. So I love something earlier you said. We've, we've, We've talked pretty extensively about nutrition and food and FODMAP, but you also said you're a big fan of mindfulness, mm-hmm. which is you don't hear from a lot of GIs. So let's talk about the power of mindfulness. So powerful. Um, there's a mind-gut connection, um, and we have this nerve called the vagus nerve that comes from the brain. Uh, it's one of the cranial nerves, and it connects to the GI tract. And you can think of it, um, if you've ever been to Germany, there's this crazy highway called the Autobahn, and people drive like super crazy fast on that highway. And I tell people just to think of the vagus nerve as that. It's like this informational superhighway. Information is just continually zipping up and down, up and down, up and down constantly. You don't see it. You don't feel it. You don't even know that it's happening, but it's happening. And uh, you may, uh, we may be drinking this coffee and, you know, we may feel happy from drinking the coffee, not because we have a caffeine buzz, but maybe because the microbiome is processing the coffee and creating a chemical as a response, a metabolite that goes to our brain and creates some euphoric um, feeling. And you'll never really appreciate that this is the chemistry that happened in the background that brought me this emotion or this feeling. But that's that's what's happening. And we know that this kind of stuff happens instantaneously. 
and the the digestive tract has its own nervous system as well. It's called the enteric nervous system. And so we often think of, oh, the nervous system, yeah, is our brain, our spinal cord, and all the nerves that come off. But there's an entirely separate nervous system called the enteric nervous system that is just in the digestive tract. And so this is where a lot of the information that comes from the gut uh, gets to our central nervous system, comes from one place and goes to the other. And if we focus on just nutrition and symptoms of the gut, that's part of the picture. But like I was saying before, you have to look at the whole body and the whole person. And oftentimes, it's not necessarily from bottom up, from digestive tract up to the brain. It's also from top down, from brain down to the digestive tract. And so just by focusing on stress, anxiety, depression, um, and, and things like that, you can actually help uh, reverse a lot of the digestive symptoms. I can give you a story if you have time for a story. Sure. This, is a, this is a classic story I tell a patient that came to my office a few years ago, and he uh, says, you know, Doc, I, I have really bad abdominal pain. I'm pretty sure I have pancreatic cancer. It's a true story. And I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm the second opinion, so he's already been through another GI doctor already. As I'm looking through all your tests, you had an endoscopy, you had a colonoscopy, you had a CAT scan, you had lab work done, all very recently in the last few months. Everything is completely normal. There's no mass on your pancreas. There's nothing. Nothing. His pancreas is normal. Uh, I'm, and he says, I'm pretty sure I have pancreatic cancer. Can you just do do it again? Do another CAT scan. And I said. Okay, if, if you want me to order another CAT scan at the end of this visit, I'll order another CAT scan to make you happy. But just answer this one question for me first. And he said, okay, what? I said, I want you to fast forward in time by about a year and pretend we meet in Whole Foods. We're just walking in the grocery store. We bump into each other. And... Um, you look like a million bucks. You're happy, you're smiling, you're patting people on the back, you're telling jokes, you look like a million bucks. And I come up to you and I say, hey, you look great. What did you do? How did you get to this point? What would you tell me? And he looked down at the ground, he looked up at me, and he says, Doc, I'm just depressed. Wow. And, and that was the beginning of his healing journey. He didn't need the CAT scan. He didn't need labs done again. He just needed somebody to talk to about what was going on. And we, we used that as the point where we could begin talking about what was going on. It turned out that his daughter, who just went off to college, was diagnosed with lymphoma, and he was super worried about her and um, some other issue with one of his sons. And it was just really kind of working on him really bad and he was getting you know stomach aches from that so we talked about that we talked about mindfulness we talked about you know how the perspective on how you look at things and how to turn a negative into a positive and just kind of gave him some basic training we did a my my favorite four seven eight breath together in the office and so can hold inhale for four hold for seven exhale for eight yeah i'm guessing correctly yeah um, that's a, my classic gateway breath that Andrew Wilde teaches us. It's a gateway to meditation. Yep. Um, and, mm. 
And he came back, you know, a few months later, he was in much better spirits. Uh, he didn't have any stomach aches and he's telling me he's going jogging on the beach and was meditating regularly and, and life was just looking different. He had a different perspective on things. And so that is an example, classic example. I always tell this story because it's an example of somebody who would get labeled as chronic abdominal pain. Um, and, and unfortunately sometimes might end up in somebody's office and then get a prescription for a narcotic, right? Or something else. And then develop another problem as a result of that, um, where the originating problem was really just needed to be solved by talking to the guy. Well, it's just so symbolic of what's wrong with the system where you painted the, the perfect picture earlier. Got 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Guy has symptoms. Okay, what well, are the symptoms? What do we do? You don't have the time as a practicing physician to say, how are you feeling? Yeah. You'd say, okay, you have abdominal pain. All your workup is negative. There's nothing organic. Here's a prescription. <sighs> right. So the works. parallel path, if he sees someone else, he's going to some, well, maybe there's some, like here's a here's a prescription drug and so forth. Yeah. And then and then maybe there's, a, then we know what, or maybe antibiotic, we know what that does, the microbiome, but nothing wrong with that. You know, people need them, but it just, wow. Here's some Prilosec, here's a pain medication, it'll slow down your motility and give you SIBO, then you'll come back in two months saying you have bloating, and we'll just say it's IBS, see you later. (laughs) That's what happens, I swear, I mean, it's not to be negative on my colleagues, but I don't, you know, you can't really blame them because that's just kind of the way the system is set up, but if you have the opportunity to kind of dial back and say, okay, hang on for a second, let's talk about where this is coming from, you have SIBO, we can try herbs instead of antibiotics. Um, there's actually a study from 2014 my colleagues at Hopkins did with comparing herbal regimen against antibiotic regimen for SIBO and found them to be equivalent. And I see that same in wow. my experience. You know, we can use certain other kinds of things to help people symptomatically while we're managing the overarching things. Because at the end of the day, the mindfulness practice and teaching you can't switch that on and off very quickly. That takes time, it takes practice, it takes effort and repetition. So you got to help people get there before they can maintain yeah. that place. So I went to a GI years ago, and even though it ended up being a specific strain of a specific probiotic that ultimately helped me with, with bloating, uh-huh. I, I said, you know, what do I do? And, and one of the things he said, he's like, do you, do you, check your, do you have your iPhone on the toilet? <laughs> and I was like, yes. He's like, don't do that anymore. <laughs> and I was like, that's interesting. And I was like, oh, you know, all makes sense. Um, so th- there is this interesting connection, though, between gut health and anxiety. Yeah. And anxiety is pervasive. It seems like we're generation anxiety. So talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. And, you know, this doesn't come just necessarily from adulthood. Um The important thing to remember uh, for all the parents out there who get stressed out um, just with life and having little kids, it's natural. I mean, you have work responsibilities, household responsibilities, but the anxiety and depression that we may have later as adults may have some of its roots as children. Um, uh, there's a famous monkey study I talk about where they took, uh, it's not a nice study, but I guess it made the point. They took infant monkeys, um, uh, and they checked their microbiome and then they separated from the mother, the monkey, and then they checked the microbiome again. 
and they saw that there was a shift in the microbiome of the baby monkey um, that seemed to be consistent with a profile, a microbiome profile of someone in adulthood with like OCD, anxiety, and things like that. So we know uh, and feel that these changes and shifts in the microbiome can actually impact how we feel, how we think, our emotion, our responsiveness. And uh, guys at UCLA did a study um, on emotional reactivity uh, where uh, they, uh, it was, I think, just with women. The study was just in women, and uh, I believe they had them in the, an MRI scanner, a functional MRI scanner. And um, they showed them some provocative images, and they looked and saw, you know, what's happening in the brain. Um, and then they gave them probiotics um, and uh, did the same thing and found that the emotional reactivity was decreased after they had received probiotics. So this is real stuff. I mean, I don't know that we know exactly which probiotic to take for what, for what person entirely yet. I think we're working towards that direction. Um, I think we don't know 100% all the pathways by which this happens. Um, but I think what we understand is that it does happen and that there are certain fundamental elements that are associated with that. And um, this is the beauty of the human body. Yeah. So <laughs> my, my last question, what's <clears throat> interesting and exciting to you in terms of whether it's a latest study or science, like where do you think we're going with regards to integrative medicine? I think where we're going is a very precision-based, personalized-based approach. Because we know that you know my microbiome and your microbiome are only 10 to 20% similar. We also know that there was a, a study that actually came out a few months ago. I don't know if too many people know about it, but they took like 30-some-odd people, I think 34 people, and um, they uh, strictly watched what they ate for, I think, 17 days, and they checked their microbiome every single day. And they found that they could predict uh, shifts and changes in the microbiome in each individual. But that, that change was not um, able to be predicted across the board with all the other people. So if I had broccoli and you had broccoli on the same day, I might have five different changes in my microbiome that might produce five different metabolites. You might have five different changes in your microbiome that might produce five different metabolites, and yours might be good and mine might be bad. Sure. You don't know. And so it is almost impossible to say everybody should eat XYZ every day and you're good because it doesn't work that way. And you even see, you know, um, uh, these pockets of people, you know, in the health and wellness field talking about you have to eat this way, you have to eat this way, you have to eat that way. And that's because in their personal experience, that's what helped them. Mm -hmm. And so when you find that you eat in a particular way and your joint aches get better, your skin gets better, everything, you feel stronger, you lose weight, then you start becoming a passionate advocate for that. But when it's an extreme situation, like you have to only eat this, you have to restrict yourself in this way, it's not going to really be universal. The only thing that really matters at the end of the day is not what is better for this pod of people, but what is better for you. And each person is different. And so listening to what your body says and what your body needs, looking at your microbiome and finding out 
how diverse or lack of diversity, you know, or how undiverse your microbiome is, looking at some elements of genetics and all these other things and that we were talking about earlier and putting them together, that's really the best way, I think, to kind of address your personal health. Because at the end of the day, you want to feel better. You don't want to try to follow somebody else's diet plan and hope to feel better. You want to know what's going on with you. Amen to that. Dr. Marvin Singh, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. 